All right, well, good morning, guys, and uh, it's great to see you here this morning as we're continuing in a series now. It's actually the, the sixth week in a series that we've been in that we've been calling Amos, uh, The Dangerous Drift from the Heart of God. And uh, kind of like Clark mentioned just a moment ago, I just want to say that if you are a guest with us here today, if it's your first time here, man, we're so glad that you're here. Thanks for being here. We hope you feel welcome and uh, get a chance to grab that gift that we have for you, just a way of saying thanks for being here. Uh, but just to kind of catch you up to speed, if you are a guest or maybe if you've even missed the past few weeks here, we've been in this series where we've been looking together at this incredible book of the Old Testament, the book of Amos. And we've been saying this is a book of the Bible that is oftentimes overlooked. We said most people have really never read the book of Amos in the Bible. In fact, many people have never even heard of the book of Amos in the Bible. And yet we said that this book of the Bible, this small, minor prophet, nine-chapter book in the Old Testament, we said that this is strikingly relevant to us. And so in this series, we've actually given it a, a subtitle, a, The Dangerous Drift from the Heart of God. And basically, here's what we've been saying. We said that one of the things Amos does for us is it helps expose some something that we said that all who follow Jesus can relate to. And of course, I know that not everyone that's in this room today might follow Jesus. Some of you might still be investigating that question and trying to figure out the whole Jesus thing. But for those of us who follow Christ, we said we are all susceptible to this drift. There is a, a drift that we all have a natural proclivity towards, and that is away from the heart of God. We have a natural drift away from the, the purposes of God, from the heart of God, from the desires of God. And we said that what the book of Amos does is it explains to us that this drift is, is something that happens to all of God's people, and we said it is oftentimes subtle, uh, usually an inconspicuous drift, and we said it's actually a very dangerous drift. It is a dangerous drift that happens from the heart of God. And the reason it's so dangerous is because when we drift from God, we drift from his power and we drift from his presence in our lives and we drift from his purposes and the things that he desires for us. And so as we've been going through the book of Amos, we said that Amos is actually kind of like a wake-up call. It's sort of a challenging book to read because it's a bit abrasive, but that's because it's intended to be a wake-up call to God's people who drift. And so as we've been kind of journeying through uh, the book of Amos, we said what Amos does for us is it reveals something that we've been calling the seven undercurrents of uh, spiritual drift. And so we said that basically Amos is going to show us seven, seven different ways or seven contributing factors that cause this drift to take place, right? So seven different undercurrents that make this drift happen. And so each week we've actually been looking at a different undercurrent of spiritual drift. And so, so far in the series, if you've been with us, uh, we've looked at four of those together. We talked about the, the first undercurrent of spiritual drift being that of domesticating God. We talked about the second one, blessing blockage. We talked about the third one. We called that corrupting justice. We looked last week at this idea of forgetting grace. And by the way, uh, each week we actually took some time to really kind of unpack what does that mean? How does that show up in the book of Amos? And then how does that show up in our lives as well? And so if you missed those previous conversations, I would actually encourage you. Uh, you can rewind. You can listen to those. Go back to our website or our podcast. Subscribe or watch or listen to that. All of that, of course, is for free. And so we'd encourage you to do that. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the fifth undercurrent of, of spiritual drift. And this is something that we're calling today, what we're calling this building offline. Building offline. And uh, so I know when I put that up there, that might seem a little intriguing to you. Maybe it sounds a little confusing. So what exactly do we mean by that, and, and, and how exactly does this play out? So as we're going to investigate today, we're going to talk about this, this undercurrent of spiritual drift, one of the contributing factors to this spiritual drift, and we're calling that building offline. 
So, so let me show you what I mean by that. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me? And we're going to turn once again to the book of Amos. And today we're going to find ourselves in Amos chapter 7. Okay, so grab your Bibles and let's go ahead and get over to Amos, uh, Amos chapter 7. If you brought your own Bible with you today, you can go ahead and find that. Uh, like we've been saying each week, the book of Amos is a little bit hard to find in the Old Testament. So if you need to use a table of contents, that's no big deal. No shame in that whatsoever. If you need to borrow one of our Bibles, if you didn't bring your own Bible, that's not a problem either. We actually have some Bibles for you in those chairs. You're going to find Amos uh, 7 on page 641 in those black Bibles, so you can go ahead and find that. And then, of course, let me just also say that if you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we actually really want you to have a copy of the Bible, so you can just take one of ours and make that a gift from us to you. Okay, so Amos chapter 7, however you get there, go ahead and get there. That's where we're going to be kind of flipping there today. Now, as you guys are turning to Amos chapter 7, let me ask you a quick question. I actually brought something with me here today. Um, I don't know if you guys can see this in the back or not, but can anyone tell me, um, does anybody know what this is? What is the Go ahead and say it out loud. What was it? A plumb line, right? A plumb line. Or some, someone at the last night service said a plumb bob. Apply like that, plumb bob, plumb bob square pants. So this is, this, is a, this is a plumb line, all right? Now, depending on uh, what generation you grew up in, you may or may not know what a plumb line is. This is actually my plumb line. I actually bought this. Uh, after the first time I studied the book of Amos in depth. I studied the book of Amos, and I said, man, I gotta get a plumb line after studying the book of Amos. And so I went and I bought this. This is mine. I have never used it before, and this is actually the first time I've had a chance to use it was to bring it here, but this is my plumb line. Now, why did I bring this with me today, and why did I buy this after I read the book of Amos for the first time? Well, the reason is because what I wanna kind of talk about today is that I believe that, that one of the keys to understanding the heart and the message of the book of Amos actually comes in understanding one of these. And that if you can understand one of these tools, a plumb line, it actually helps you understand the full message that Amos is trying to communicate to his people. And let me show you what I'm talking about because in Amos chapter seven, kind of right here in the heart of the book of Amos, you're gonna see that Amos uses and talks about one of these. So let me show you what I'm talking about. We're gonna start in Amos chapter seven, We'll start off in verse 7. Here's what it says. Amos 7, verse 7. This is what God showed me. So God is going to give Amos a vision concerning his people. And here's, here's what he says. God, this is what God showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And then the Lord said, okay, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people, Israel, and I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. All right, now, let's just go ahead and pause there. So here in Amos, kind of like I said in chapter 7, and, and some would even say that Amos chapter 7 really summarizes the heart of the book of Amos. Here you have this vision that God gives to Amos, and the vision is one of a plumb line. Now, this, this passage, like I said, is it, a little difficult to read because in it we see, man, God is... Is, is judging, destroying, ruining, right? He, in, uh, and, and tearing down the house of Jeroboam. He's doing all this stuff. And like for, for some of us, that's a really hard thing to read. It's really challenging to read that because here you see God punishing, you see a God of judgment, you see a God tearing things down. But like I said, I think that the key to really understanding the message of Amos comes in understanding this. It comes in understanding the vision that God is giving to Amos and that is of 
the plumb line. And so because I think that this is so important and is so critical to understanding this message, um, I just want to talk for the rest of our time about the plumb line. I want to talk about what he's talking about in this passage. And, and so here's what I want to do. I actually just want to talk about three different things regarding the plumb line. Here it is. I'll just give you, I'll give you a map of our conversation today just to let you know where we're going. So here's the three things I want to talk about. I want to talk first and foremost about the meaning of the plumb line. Okay, so I just want to talk about real simple, what does it mean? God is going to set a plumb line on his people. What exactly does that mean? Okay, the second thing, I want to talk about the need for the plumb line, the need for the plumb line. And the last thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about the hope, the hope of the plumb line. Okay, so pretty simple, those three things. We'll talk about the meaning of the plumb line. So what does it mean, right? Then, then we'll talk about the need for it. And then lastly, we want to talk about the hope of it. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go ahead and get into it then. We're going to start at the very beginning. Let's talk at the very top here about the meaning of the plumb line. So when we read Amos chapter 7, we notice that the vision that God gives to him is he says, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. So, so again, what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean? What does this vision mean? Well, well here's what it means. I, I think that, that to start with, we first have to understand uh, what a plumb line is. And uh, it's actually interesting, like I said earlier, depending on what generation you're in, you may or may not know what this is. I was, uh, you guys probably know here at Grace Church, we have some guys on our staff, uh, a lot of guys on our staff who are in their 20s. And so I was talking to them about this message this week, and I was explaining to them that we're going to be talking about the plumb line. And as I was talking to them, they kind of looked at me with this look on their face. And I said, well, do you guys think that sounds like a good direction? You think this sounds like it's a, it'd be a good thing? And they said, yeah, it sounds really good. They said, but it's got one question. And I was like, what's that? And they're like, what's a plumb line? I was like, oh, that's right. We should probably start by just defining what a plumb line is. So, like I said, this is a plumb line. And if you're not sure what this is used for, uh, this, this, this is actually a tool that is primarily used in construction. In fact, this is a timeless tool. It's been used for thousands of, people still use this. It was used thousands upon thousands of years ago. In fact, we even see in the book of Amos, which was like maybe 2,600 years ago or more, uh, that a plumb line was something that was used. And a plumb line was basically a tool that was used in construction, and it was something that was used to determine whether or not something was plumb. Right? So we all know if you're checking to see if something is level or is flush or is vertical in a correct vertical relationship, you would check to see if it was plumb. That's what a plumb line was for. So a plumb line relies on gravity. You have at the bottom, this is called a plumb bob, this heavy weight, and it's tied to a line, and it relies on gravity. And when it kind of settles in, when it stops kind of swaying back and forth, you can see if something is true, it has a, has a true proper vertical relationship, right? It tests to see if something is upright, if it has structural integrity. And it's actually interesting, last night um, during the service, I was talking about the plumb line, and I had a guy come up to me, he said that he's in the Air Force, and he said, in the Air Force, we still use these. He said, as it relates to measuring things on planes and want to make sure that things, he says, we still use these, the classic plumb line. And, and it's a timeless thing, right? The plumb line is something that, that has been used for centuries and centuries and centuries, but it is to check to see if something is in a proper vertical relationship. So when God says... I am setting a plumb line among my people. What does that mean? Well, well, here's, here's what that means. Um, uh, probably a good way to think about it would be like, like this. So I, I brought with me again, we, we talk, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you might remember our shalom wall. And our shalom wall, we said this is actually a really good illustration of um, God's design and God's desire for our lives. This is actually a good picture of God's desire for our families and for our society and for our world. We said that when God designed the world, he actually designed it to be perfect. 
And what that means is that God designed everything. We said this a couple of weeks ago. God, the Bible says that God designed everything for shalom. And we said the word shalom, it's actually a Hebrew word that gets translated into our English language as peace. And we said that actually, peace actually doesn't go far enough because the word shalom, we said it's so full and it's so rich. We said the word shalom actually means, it means like interdependent, harmonious, completeness. That's what it means. And so God, when God designed the world, he said, this is the way I want it to be. I want everything to work together in perfect harmony. I want every piece of what I've created to use its unique shape, to use its, its unique abilities, to use its unique design, to contribute and to give itself to the better of the whole in such a way that everything works in a perfect, harmonious relationship. And the Bible says that this is the way that God intended the world to be made. This is the way that God wants our lives to look. This is the way that he wants our world to look, right? That, that, that God, God wants us to build our lives the right way. He wants us to build our marriages and our families the right way, that God wants us to build the world the right way. And so what does it mean that God has a plumb line? What that means is that the plumb line is God's standard of whether or not something is true to form or not, whether or not something is in a proper vertical relationship. So basically, this is God's standard. The plumb line is God's standard of right and wrong. This is God's standard of good and bad. This is God's determination between what is just and what is unjust. That's what a plumb line would mean, right? In fact, this idea that God has a plumb line, that God has a standard, is actually something you see all throughout Scripture. It's not just here in the book of Amos. Let me just show you another passage, for example. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 28 says this. God says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. And so that's the idea again, that God God has a line, Right? God has a way in which he says this is the standard of how I think things should be. And that when things align to this line, it's going to build your life, it's going to build your family, it's going to build society the way that I've desired it to be built. Okay, so that's the meaning of the plumb line. I think it's pretty easy for us to understand the meaning of the plumb line. But I think that, that brings us to the second point. Here, here's the second thing. We also have to understand the need for the plumb line the need for one of these, and the need for God to have one of these, right? And here's what I mean by that. What makes a plumb line so successful, I think all of us know this, what makes a, pl- a plumb line so timeless and so, and so reliable, and that the fact that a plumb line can be used across all generations and all time and, and all those things, what makes it such a reliable thing is because it depends on an unchanging, reliable, permanent source. And what is that? Gravity, it relies on gravity. Gravity does not change. It doesn't change. And so because of that, this will never lie to you. It will never lie to you, right? So, so you can go back um, 3,000 3, years ago and you can drop a plumb line and it's gonna tell you the same thing that it tells you here in this room today. You can go on the other side of the world and you can drop a plumb line and it is gonna tell you the same thing that it's gonna tell you here today. Why? Because it relies on an unchanging source It relies on something that is reliable, right? It relies on something that is timeless, and that's what makes this thing so so valuable. I think all of us understand that if you, there is a need for this, if you're trying to build a structure that's gonna last, if you're trying to, gonna build a structure that endures, there is a need for something that is based on something timeless. There's a need for something that's based on something objective. So so for example, when, when the guys built this building, refurbished this building, I actually watched them do it, when they were doing that, what did they use to, to make their calculations and to make their, to make their measurements and to check to see if things were level? Well, I'll tell you this much. They didn't eyeball it. Right? They used 
sources that were objective, not sources that were subjective. Right? They didn't, they didn't, I didn't come in here one day and the guys that were building the building, they, were like, they weren't just like, yeah, I think, you know, I'm going to eyeball it and just make sure that that looks plumb. Like, that's what I'm going to do. They didn't do that. Why? Because all of us know that if you base, if you build something off of a subjective source of measurement, right, if you do that, um, well, first off, that would make them terrible builders. But the other thing that would do is it would put all of us in danger. All of us would be in danger. Why? Because when it's subjective, it's subject to change. That can shift and that can move. And, and when we build buildings and structures off of a subjective source, it's going to lead to very shaky places. It's going to lead to unstable foundations, right? Now, if you can understand that, the Bible's actually going to say that the very same thing is true as it relates to building our life, as it relates to building our marriages and our families, as it relates to building society. The Bible's actually going to say the same thing, that when, you, when we rely on a subjective means of what is right and wrong to determine how we live our lives or to determine how we do our family or to determine how we interact in society, that is going to lead to some really, really, really shaky places, to some very unstable foundations. And let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. Here's one thing I know about every single person in this room. In fact, here's what I know about every single person in the world. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, whether you're a person of faith or not, depending on what your faith is, here's what I know about every person to be true, and that's this. All of us, all of us have a line. We all have a line. Every single one of us have a line. In fact, one of the ways that you can identify where your line is of right and wrong, of just and unjust, is you can actually hear it in the way that we talk. We use the same language. We actually use the same metaphor when we talk. Think about it. We'll say things. We'll look at someone and we'll say, man, the way that guy was acting, that was out of line. It was out of line. We'll say that. We'll say, man, that guy, he just crossed the line. Right? We'll say things like, um, that person's actions, they were crooked. Those are crooked actions. Right? We'll look at uh, like, like, ter- like the terrible atrocities that we saw this past week in Las Vegas. And we would look at something like that, and many of us would say, man, that's warped. That is warped and twisted behavior. And what, what are we saying? We're actually using the same metaphor. All of us have a line. But you see, here's the problem, is when we base that line on, on our own personal opinion, on a subjective source of what we think is right and wrong, we will all disagree on where that line is. As a matter of fact, I think that's where we get, if, if you, you know, watch the news and those type of things, what is the source of all of the political controversies that we see today? The source of it is that we don't agree on where the line is. It's people saying, well, I think the line's here. Well, no, I think the line's here. Well, I disagree with you. Well, I disagree with you. I think this is the line. I think that's the line. I think we need to be here. I think we need to be there. And that's the source of all of those things. And what the Bible's going to say is that when we build our lives and we build our families and when we build a society on these subjective means, this, these subjective sources, it's going to lead to very, very shaky places. I think a good example of what I'm talking about um, would actually probably be, to some extent or another, the society that we find ourselves living in today. I think that's probably a good illustration of this. As many of you guys know, the the society that we are in today in 21st century America tends to be one where the buzzword is tolerance, right? We always talk about tolerance. Tolerance is kind of the big big thing. But I thought this was really fascinating. This, This past week, I was reading a really, really interesting book. It was called God Has a Name by a guy named John Mark Comer. Actually, would really recommend it to you. It's a phenomenal read. God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. But in that book, he was talking about something I thought was really interesting, and that was, he said, there's a difference between classic tolerance and modern tolerance. 
And I love what he said here because here's what he said. He said, classic tolerance uh, is basically a, a tolerance that says, you and I can disagree with each other and not kill each other, right? We can disagree on minor things and agree to not kill each other. And, and I think all of us are probably pro-classic tolerance. Like, that's a good idea, right? However, what's happened as a society is we have really drifted into more, a new kind of tolerance that, that John Mark Comer calls a modern tolerance. And here's what modern tolerance is. Modern tolerance basically says right and wrong is elastic, right? It's, it's, not, it's not, there's no, like, permanent right and wrong. It, ch- it changes. It ebbs and it flows. And everyone can determine what is right and wrong for themselves, right? And so in a modern society, in fact, you you hear it in the way we talk. We'll say things like this. We'll say, whatever's right for you is right for you. Whatever's right for me is, tell me, right for me. And And so what modern tolerance would say is this. They would say that the cardinal sin is to tell someone that they're wrong. And so if you were to look at someone and you were to say, I actually think you're wrong, I actually think that what you're saying is, is not correct, or I think that what you're doing is sin. That to say that now, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how gracious you are, no matter how gentle you are, is no longer just disagreeing. That is now considered hate speech. Now that, is not, that is now considered bigotry. So, so for example, all right, if you disagreed with the way that I viewed sexuality, or if I disagreed with the way that you viewed sexuality, and I came to you and I said, you know what, I actually think that your view of sexuality is wrong. If I said that today in our culture, no matter how gentle and intelligent and loving and respectful I was in saying that, that is no longer considered disagreement. That is now considered bigotry and hate speech. And the thing about this that's so dangerous is, well, first off, it's nonsensical. It is absolutely nonsense. And the reason it's nonsensical is because it can't even stand on its own claim. Now, let, me, let me show you what I mean. The argument behind modern tolerance is cyclical. So, so here would be a good example. Here's what modern tolerance says. Modern tolerance would say, you can't tell me I'm wrong. Cardinal sin, don't you tell me I'm wrong, right? Why? Because everyone defines right and wrong however they decide. Everyone determines what's plumb for themselves. I say what's plumb for me, you say what's plumb for you, we decide it ourselves. So you can't tell me I'm wrong because everyone defines right and wrong however they want. Therefore, you're wrong to tell me I'm wrong. Do you guys guys see how cyclical this is? You can't tell anyone they're wrong. Well, what if I think you're wrong? You're wrong. Okay, well, I'm not sure. It doesn't even stand on its own merits. And, And so not only is this nonsensical, it's also really toxic. It's really dangerous because what happens is when you build a society or when you build a life off of this mentality, it's going to put you in really shaky places. There is a need for there to be an unchanging, for there to be a transcendent, for there to be a reliable source, there to be a plumb. There's a need for this to take place, right? And that's why when you look in the book of Amos, you're going to see that this is the case. In fact, it's interesting. In the book of Amos, what what, what you're going to see is that God's people had drifted in such a way that they had drifted away from God's desire. They had drifted offline, off of God's plumb line. So God, God built a society. He desired to build a society. He came to his people, and he said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to draw a plumb line. He said, I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you my commandments. I'm going to give you the prophets. I'm going to give you teaching. He says, and I'm going to set a plumb line, and I'm going to tell you that this is the way that I desire you to live. And when you live the way that I desire you to live, you're going to experience shalom. 
And God says, this is, this is what I desire for you. See, but what happened in the book of Amos was that God's people started to drift off the line. And they started to say, you know what? We're going to decide for ourselves what we think is best. We're going we're gonna to base our society off of a subjective means. And so all of us are just, so, so yeah, man, we know what God says about that. And what they started to do is they started to break God's commandments. Yeah, we know what God says about the way that we should treat the poor and the way that we should interact with people. But, but the Bible says that in Amos, they started to corrupt justice. They started to treat the poor contemptuously. They started to exploit them for the sake of personal gain. The Bible says that in the book of Amos, the people started to say, yeah, we know what, we know what God says about sexuality and the commandments that he gives. But they said, you know what? We're gonna go ahead and we're just gonna, we're gonna twist that and we're gonna make it. We think it should be like this. We know God says that, that sex should be done like this, that this is his desire, but you know what? We don't like it that way. We're gonna do it like this instead. And this society of people, they said, you know what? We know what, we know what God's desires and what God's heart is for the way that we should treat our neighbors and we should love our neighbors, but you know what? We, we think it's better to do it this way. And so what happened was they started to take liberties. They started to just, they started breaking God's commandments. They started contorting and distorting the things that God's word would say. And they started to kind of move all this stuff around. And eventually, I mean, I could keep going with this. And that right there is a deeply satisfying feeling, right? But this right here is actually exactly what happens in the book of Amos, this is exactly what happens in the book of Amos. I want you to notice what happens. God says, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. And when God puts the plumb line down, the Bible says that God's people had drifted so far. They were so out of whack. They were so out of line. They were so cockeyed that God looks. At, and what was the result? God said, I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined with my sword. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. And God knocks the whole thing down. And this, this right here, by the way, is actually a, a really good picture, as hard as it is to see, of what you find in the book of Amos. Now, here's the thing. I think for some of us, quite honestly, this is where some of us really struggle. I think for some of us, this is, this is what's difficult for us about the book of Amos. Because let's face it, when you read the book of Amos, and, and some of you have been doing this, one of the hardest things that we, we can, that we stomach is that, man, you see God, God is a God of anger. He is a God of wrath in the book of Amos. Man, you see, like Amos, it just looks like God is mad, the whole book. And it's just destruction and wrath. And, and for some of us, quite honestly, that's the, the problem we have with books like Amos and books in the Old Testament. It's because we have a really hard time justifying this picture of God with the other things we know to be true about God. Like we know God is a gracious God. We know that he is slow to anger. We know that he's abounding in love. And yet when we see stuff like this, God saying, I'm gonna destroy the sanctuaries of Israel and I'm gonna ruin them and I'm gonna rise my sword against the house of Jeroboam. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Man, I'm having a hard time rectifying these two attributes of God. But you see, this is where I think it's so important that we understand this third thing about the plumb line. And that is we have to understand the hope of the plumb line. You gotta understand the hope of the plumb line. Here's what I mean by this, all right? I think it is a really dangerous thing, a really dangerous thing, to try to separate the love of God and the grace of God from the judgment of God and the wrath of God. I think it's a really dangerous thing to try to separate those two things. Because, and, and here's why, the Bible's actually gonna tell us that in order for us to have a, a true understanding of who God is, 
to have a fully orbed picture of the personality and character of God, you have to understand both of these things. You have to understand that God is a God of love and that God is a God of, of grace and mercy and that because he is a God of love, he has to be a God of wrath and a God of anger, right? That those two things, in fact, let me just show you a passage of the Bible. I wanna show you one in particular. This is in Exodus 34. And this is actually where God, for the first time, tells his people, he tells Moses what he is like. Exodus 34, you can almost think of this as God's press release to the world. God is like, you wanna know what I'm like? I'm gonna tell you what I'm like. And so God is gonna give Moses his name. He says, this is what I'm like. As a matter of fact, just a quick aside, this passage right here is the most quoted passage in scripture by scripture. Scripture quotes this passage more than any other passage. This is where God says what he's like. And here's what God says about himself. It says, then the Lord proclaimed his name. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I want you to notice just in this passage that what do you see? You see both aspects. God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Here in God's explanation about himself, you see both his love and his grace and you also see his justice and you see his wrath. I actually thought it was kind of interesting when I was studying this this past week, I thought it was really cool. The word for slow to anger in the original language, if you pull that back in the Hebrew, it actually is a really neat word picture. It literally means that God is long of nostrils. Isn't that fascinating? Puts a weird word picture in your mind, doesn't it? And the reason I think that's so cool is because back in Hebrew culture, a lot of times emotions were associated with your nose. And so like if you were mad, one of the ways the Bible talks about, like in the book of Numbers, when God gets mad, the Bible says he had burning nostrils. And it's this idea of like your nostrils are flaring. Why is that? Well, you guys know this. When you get mad, what, what do you do? Like you grit your teeth and you scrunch up your face and your nostrils flare out. Right, that's what happens when you get mad. In fact, why don't you turn to the person you came with and give them your best nostril. Right, tell, tell the person, hey, you got a booger, man. You got to get that. So that's, uh, right, nostrils though. So when the Bible says that God is long of nostrils, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that God is not quick to get mad. That yeah, God gets angry, but it, it takes a lot of work to get him there. He has long nostrils. In fact, if you think about it, what do, you, what do you do? What do you do when you're really, really mad at somebody and you're really angry and you're really annoyed, but you are trying to really keep it together? What do you do? I know what you do because I do the same thing. You purse your lips together and you, you inhale through your nostrils slowly. You go, okay, right? That's what you do. And what is that? You're being long of nostrils. You're being long of nostrils, right? And this is what I love. The Bible says God is long of nostrils. This is what God's like. Do you know that? God, God is, some of us have a picture in our mind that God is just this, this, this hot-headed, I'm gonna strike you down with a bolt of lightning. If you, no, no, God is, God is, okay, all right, let's try this again. I love you, care about you. I love to show mercy. I don't, I don't want to exercise wrath. That's not my first desire be patient. You know, you know what the book of 1 Peter says? The book of 1 Peter says that God is slow in, in, in um, showing judgment because his desire is that all men would come to repentance. That's the hope. That's the hope. The hope of the plumb line. The hope is, is, that, is that, man, you would come back 
is that you would repent. And so the Bible says that God is slow to anger. And I know for some of us, we might think to ourselves, well, it doesn't seem like God is slow to anger. Man, sometimes when I read passages like in Amos or I read like passages in the Old Testament, it actually looks like God is pretty quick to anger. It looks to me like God like flies off the handle sometimes. I mean, he just knocked down a wall for crying out loud, right? We see God rain down sulfuric fire on a city. Like that doesn't seem slow to anger. But, but I think if we view God as a quick-tempered, loose cannon, quick-to-anger type of God, if we view him that way, I think what it does is it actually exposes an inadequacy in the way that we read the Bible, Here's what I mean by that. For many of us, the way we read the Bible is like this. We jump in, we read a passage, we determine if we like it, and then we jump back out again. And, and you see, the problem is, that is, a, that is a terrible way to read the Bible. That's a terrible way to read anything. But when you read the Bible in its context, when you read stories like what you see here in Amos in context, what you'll see is that years, I mean, in the case of Amos, hundreds of years have elapsed where God has been patient and God has been slow to anger and God has been long of nostrils until eventually you get to the book of Amos and God says it's gone too far. It's gone too far, right? In fact, in Amos chapter four alone, if you've been reading through the book of Amos, you might remember in Amos chapter four, God says this. He says, listen, he says, I tried this and you guys never returned to me. And then he said, and then I tried this and you never returned to me. And then I tried this and you never returned to me. And he lists a whole bunch of ways that he tried to get people to come back to him and they didn't respond to him. God was being what? He was being slow to anger. In fact, even in Amos chapter seven and the very first part of Amos chapter seven, God gives Amos two visions of destruction. He says, this is what I'm gonna do to my people. And Amos says, please God, don't do that. And God goes, all right, I won't, I won't. I'll be slow to anger until you get here. And, and so it's important that we understand that, yeah, God is slow to anger, but we have to temper that with the reality that God does not leave the guilty unpunished, right? That God, that God is a God of wrath, that God, just because he's slow to anger doesn't mean he does not get angry. And there is a God of wrath that we see in Scripture. Now, now here's the thing. I think for some of us, when we see these two elements of God, we see his love and we see his grace and we see his anger and we see his wrath, we are tempted to pick a side. We are tempted to say God is one or the other. And in our society, quite honestly, we favored the long-nostrilled God. That's the one that we like the most. And so we end up going with that. But like I said, I think it is a problem. I think it is a mistake to separate those two things. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, to say that God is a God of love and to say that God is not a God of wrath, I believe is... is is, is actually an incompatible statement. And the reason is because of this. The opposite of love is not wrath. It is not judgment. The opposite of love, in my opinion, is indifference. That's the opposite. In fact, I would even go as far to say this. I would say that wrath and judgment and justice are a necessary function of love. If you love, you will be angry. You will have wrath towards Something. You're like, don't believe me? Let, me? let me give you a quick illustration, all right? So I want you just to imagine with me for a minute. So I have, I got, I got, I have three kids, and uh, we actually have a fourth on the way, but we have three kids, uh, two, two boys that are eight and six, and we have our little princess who's a year and a half, and my daughter is just, she is so unbelievably cute. She has me tied around every finger that I have, and, uh, and so she, but she's she feisty, and she'll, if you give her a hug, she'll kiss you, and she'll bite you, at, like, in the same interaction, it's pretty crazy. And so, so anyway, I want you to imagine that, that if I was outside playing with my kids, which is you know, something we do very often, and I want you to imagine if someone came, came up and tried to abduct my daughter, right? if someone tried to take her, 
and, 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 and to use her for whatever terrible purposes they would do, the unthinkable thing. Let me ask you, what would that do to me? What would that do to me? I'll tell you what it would do to me. It would infuriate me. I would be infuriated. It would evoke wrath, right? It would evoke a desire for justice and for judgment, right? That's exactly what it would do. Even if the person didn't get away with it, I would still want them to be brought to justice. Why? In spite of my love? No, precisely because I love. It's precisely because of my love for my daughter that I am going to be angry and have wrath towards anything that threatens her well-being, anything that threatens, the, the, the threatens her flourishing in this life because of my love. In fact, I would even say this. I would say that, that if I was indifferent, that that would make me more immoral. So, so for example, if someone came and tried to take my daughter and I just said, hey man, you know, whatever works for you, works for you. Who am I to tell you what's right and what's wrong? If I was to do that, you would look at me and say, dude, you must hate your daughter. You must hate your daughter. And I would argue the same thing. If God was just indifferent, if God just looked at, looked at the brokenness and injustices and the hardship of this world and just said, ah, boys will be boys, <laughs> no problem, I think we would argue that that is not a God of love. Because if, if you really love, if you're really invested in something, wrath is a necessary component of that. And you see, I believe, I love what the way that John Stott put it. John Stott, one of the, um, just an incredible author, he said it this way. He said, God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. That, that's what God is like. He is unrelenting in his in his antagonism towards evil in all of its forms. And God, God would look and say, I hate anything, I hate anything that comes against and threatens the well-being of that which I love. And the truth is, you guys, I think all of us, we, want, we actually want a God like this. I think we don't want a God that's indifferent to human suffering. I think all of us long to see things put right. Like, this is why... For example, I think that we are, do you ever notice we are drawn to movies? Like Hollywood is drawn to a plot line where, where those who are in the wrong are brought to justice. Do you ever notice that? Those, those make for the best movies is when someone gets back at someone else. And, and we, we love those movies. Why is that? I think it's because God has stamped something in our heart. He has stamped this desire to see an unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism towards evil in all of its manifestations. That's why these movies sell the most, right? When we watch Harry Potter, we want to see Voldemort destroyed. We want to see that happen. We want to see him brought to justice. There's something, there's a sense of rightness when we see that. We're drawn to that plot line. And this is why, like, if you've seen movies like John Wick, like, we love movies like this, where the, where the dude goes on a rampage to, to get justice for the guys who stole his car and killed his dog, which you don't kill someone's dog, man. You don't do that. And so he goes and he gets justice. You want to go old school? This is why we love Karate Kid. When Ralph Macchio at the end does the crane technique kick and kicks Johnny, the bully that's been picking on him in high school who happens to know karate because everyone in the high school knows karate. I don't know how that works out. Right? We are drawn to, to that. We want to see that kind of closure. We decide, that's why in the best movie of all time, the movie Taken, so good, we want to see Liam Neeson go on a butt-kicking rampage to make good on that phone call he made to the guy who abducted his daughter. You remember, I will find you right? I will hunt you down, and I will kill you. And we're all like, yes, and amen, and we want to see it done. And there's a sense of closure. Why are we drawn to those? Because God has put in our hearts somewhere this desire that we want to see 
an uncompromising antagonism towards evil. We want to see that take place. We want to see that happen. All of us long, all of us, to see a world put right. We do. We ache for this, man. I mean, don't you? I do. I long to see a world where, where injustice is over. I long to see a world where there's no more pain and there's no... I long to see a world where stuff like we saw this past week in Las Vegas, where, I mean, I, I watch that and my heart just bleeds and I just think, man, no. It shouldn't be this way. Things shouldn't be this way. And so because of that, I want a God. I want a God who is, has an uncompromising, unrelenting, unremitting antagonism towards evil, who is fighting against all of those things. But you see, there's a challenging side to this. And the challenging side is this, that when God fights against all that threatens the shalom of what he loves, that doesn't just mean that he fights the evil out there. That also means that God wants to fight the evil in here. Because let's just be honest. We are all contributors to this. Every single one of us contributes in the hurting of each other, in, in the injustice that we see. We all contribute to this in one way or another. And listen, God is so committed. He is so committed to this unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism of evil that he's even willing to take care of that in our own hearts, that he is even willing to go to war with that in our own souls, in our own lives. See, and this is, this is why, listen, sometimes the greatest act of grace that God, that God can enact in your life is to just knock it all over. Sometimes the greatest thing God can do is that when we have constructed and we have built a life that is so far gone from his desires and from his, sometimes the greatest act of grace that God, God can enact in our lives is he can just say, you know what, let's just, let's just push it all over. Push it all over to knock your stuff down. Listen, for some of you, maybe even this morning, if, I, if you were to be honest, this is maybe a picture of where your life is right now. If, you, if you're honest, you're like, man, everything, everything is just, I am just torn apart. It all just fell apart. And, and man, can I just tell you that I actually believe that sometimes that that place of brokenness is the best place to be. And why is that? Because the hope of the plumb line. So you gotta understand, the hope of the plumb line is never destruction. The hope of the plumb line is never to knock, knock down, though God is willing to do that if necessary. The hope of the plumb line is always, always, always to rebuild. It's always to rebuild. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says it this way. He says, in spiritual matters, it's very manifest that whenever God is dealing with souls, he always uses the plumb line. And beginning with us, he finds that the very foundation of our nature is out of the perpendicular. And therefore, he does not attempt to build upon it, but he commences his operations by digging it out. God loves us so much. He's so committed to our good. He's so committed to us fi finding our purpose and finding the way that he's designed us in this life that he will even go to war with the evil that's in our own hearts and the evil that's in our own lives and dig that out and even knock our stuff down. But the hope of the plumb line is never to destroy. The hope of the plumb line is always to rebuild. That's why in the very end in Amos chapter nine, God says this. He says, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and I will restore its ruins and rebuild it as it used to be. You see the hope? God doesn't just knock down the plumb line and be like, it's a dumb thing, I'm done with you and walk away. God says, no, I'm knocking it over because I need to rebuild it. And you know what's interesting is the Bible says that this is actually fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ comes, the Bible says that God is laying down a perfect cornerstone. That he's establishing a new humanity 
that he is building a new society and that those of us who align ourselves to that cornerstone, that we then build the life, build the family, build the society that God desires us to build. And so how do we live a life that is in plumb with how God desires? And here's the answer. We submit ourselves to the cornerstone. We submit ourselves to, we, we allow him to determine for us what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad and what's just and what's unjust. And we align our lives to him, the perfect cornerstone. And as that happen, happens, God builds a new humanity. He builds a new community. One that is perpendicular, one that is plumb with his heart and with his desires. I asked the band to come up and um, as they settle in, I, I thought it would only be fitting if we ended our time today with just, just a couple of questions to consider as we have a chance to kind of worship and sing here in a moment. I think it might be good for us just to talk to God, honestly, and um, maybe to process through a couple of questions as we think about this. So here's, here's a couple questions to consider. Here's the first one. And th- this question is actually for everyone, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you're a person, um, of, uh, a person that, that, that would say that you're a Christian or whether you're still investigating that. I guess it's just a good question, and it's this, is what is your plumb line? What is your plumb line? If a plumb line is basically my standard of determining what's right and wrong, better and best, just and unjust in my life, the truth of the matter is, is everyone's got one. You have a plumb line and I have a plumb line. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you have a plumb line. You have a way of determining what you think is right in your life and what you think is wrong in your life. And my question is, man, what is your plumb line? How do you make those, those judgment calls? How do you determine that? Who is calling the shots in your life, right? Who's doing that? I think it's important that you ask. I think you owe it to yourself because maybe you've never even thought about that. I think you owe it to yourself to know that because there's almost, there's a follow-up question to this too and that would be this. What is your plumb line? And I guess my, my, my second question with that would be this. Is it reliable? Is that plumb line reliable? Or is it just some subjective source? Is it just your opinion? Is it just, well, I just, are you eyeballing it? Are you just like, well, I think this is right and I think that's wrong? Right, is it society, which I think all of us know, society is subjective. Societies ebb and flow and rise and fall and change over time. So my question is, what is your plumb line, and is it reliable? Is it reliable? And then here's a second question, and this one's specifically for those of us who follow Jesus. I think a question we need to ask ourselves is, have we drifted offline? Have there been areas in our life that maybe we have knowingly or even unknowingly drifted away from God's desires, from God's heart. Are there areas in your, for those of you who follow Jesus, are there areas in your life where you are unwilling to submit yourself to him? Where you're unwilling to submit your, your life to what he desires for you? And if that's the case, listen, I would just tell you, God is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And, and, and God is quick to show mercy. And I think it's important that we know that. But it's also important to know this. God is not indifferent He's not, he's not indifferent to in times that we live out of joint or times that we purposely don't submit. God is not indifferent to those things. And sometimes the greatest act of grace that God, can, God can, can enact in your life is to allow you to feel the full effects of the decisions that you've built for yourself. And man, I would just say the heart of, of the plumb line is that if you've drifted online, this is where God would say, man, repent, repent. And, and bring your life back into the place where God has designed for you to be. Bring your life back into that correct vertical relationship because when you do, then you'll experience the peace that God desires for you, the shalom that God desires for you. 
So as we have a chance to worship and sing, maybe you just want to pray and think, do work with God. Talk to him about this stuff. Talk to him. And do work in your heart as we close out. Let's pray. Well, God, I just um, I want to say thank you that you are slow to anger, abounding in love. God, you have long nostrils, and we're real thankful for that because, uh, man, you're not like us. You're not like us. I'm real thankful you're not like me. God, I, I am quick to anger. I am, I am quick to, to react. Um, but God, you're not that way. You're patient and you're loving and you're gracious. And the truth is, you're the maker of the universe, so you don't have to be that way. But man, am I thankful you are. And God, it's amazing for me to think that you would be patient with a person like me. You'd be patient with people like us. You'd be patient with a culture and a society like ours, but you are, you're patient. You're slow to anger. But Father, because of your love for us, that, that, that necessitates, that necessitates that you are God also of anger, that there is an unrelenting, unremitting um, antagonism towards evil in all of its forms and how that shows up in um, our world and in our lives, Father, that you are, you are so committed uh, to the restoration of your people, to the restoration of humanity, to the restoration of your creation, uh, that you will wage war on that which threatens the well-being of that which you love. And God, I'm thankful that that's the case. But at the same time, I also know that means that's a problem for me because I contribute sometimes to that, to that, to that breaking down of your desires. And so... Father, I pray that you'd even do surgery in our own hearts. Help us to come to you. God, help, help us to submit ourselves to the true plumb line, the timeless plumb line, the eternal plumb line, the unchanging plumb line. That's you. Truth is, God, our opinions ebb and flow. We are subjective in and of ourselves. Our culture's uh, stance ebbs and flows. Nations rise and fall, come and go. But there is a plumb line that endures. There is a plumb line that is eternal. And it flows from you. And so, Father, I, I realize that the best way to build our life and the best way to build our families and the best way to build this church and the best way to build our society is to base it off of your standards, off of your line. Help us to submit ourselves to that. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.